Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Uh, Today's guest is some, we've had a lot, as you guys know, that listen all the time. We've had a lot of great guests on the show, but today's guest is one of the more accomplished guests that we've probably had on the show. And we've had some really accomplished guests on our show. David Morelli currently is co-founder and CEO of AlHub. It's a research-backed coaching and leadership development company. Uh, But he also hosts an amazing thing called Peak Performance Week, which we'll probably mention a little bit later on. Um, with more details to come. But David's currently a professor of leadership also in communication and strategy at uh, University of Denver's Daniels College of Business. He served as an executive director in places. He, he's done del- delivered leadership programs for companies that, that you've heard of for sure out there. He's worked at, and, and has scores higher than leadership development companies for Sloan and MIT and IBM and Lockheed Martin. Here's the thing that I really was fascinated about with David, though. And over his 20 years of executive coaching and leadership development experience, David has become an expert in a really wide range of areas. But the ones that I'm most uh, interested in, that I think you will be as well, are those areas including neuroscience, peak performance, leadership, crisis management, which might come up today, persuasive communication, storytelling, and design thinking. Now, David has got the opportunity to coach millionaires, billionaires, musicians, movie stars, authors executives all over the world. But I think what I know, I've got to know David a little bit over the last couple of months. Um, He's a really gifted storyteller. He's a very thoughtful communicator. And I think because of his experience today, we're going to really dive into the topic of the neuroscience behind high-performing leadership. And I don't just mean if you're an executive. I think today we're going to talk about a lot of areas in your life, regardless of your position as a leader, how you can become more effective in higher performance using a lot of the things and experiences that David has to bring to the table. So David, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm so excited to be here with you. Uh, I've enjoyed our relationship thus far, and I'm so glad to, to get to share some information today with uh, your listeners. Great. Well, hey, listen, so everybody that listens to our show knows that every guest starts off the same way. And you've got to give us a little bit of your origin story, right? You've got to tell us a All little right. bit of your why and then what were those influences early in your life that made you this, this superhero today of being a combination professor, executive coach, practitioner? How'd you get there? Like, what, what's that story? Uh, yeah, so it's funny. I, I appreciate that you have all of your guests have to, to share their why. It's almost like, you know, the, the gateway to admission, you know, like, what's the secret knock? It's your origin story. <laughs> you know, it's your why. <laughs> right. I love that. Uh, so for me, it, it started off, I was uh, interested in volleyball growing up. Uh, but there wasn't a whole lot of volleyball around where I was. So I ended up starting a team at my high school and uh, I, got, I was really passionate about it. I ended up going to the place where all volleyball players would want to go in order to pursue a volleyball career, Vermont. Naturally. Uh, so, yeah, naturally, yeah. So I went to- It's a hotbed of volleyball superstars. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. Karch so Karai, I, went, I think, was from there, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. I, yeah, he was one of my heroes for sure. Uh, so, so I went to the University of Vermont and I was studying engineering. And uh, for whatever reason, I caught the bug even more so at the University of Vermont. And uh, I ended up playing uh, 
probably four hours a day training and playing four hours a day. And uh, at one point there was uh, somebody who came along and it, this was my, this was my goal, my focus, like everything. I was like, everything is going towards this goal of playing volleyball. Uh, and so we were scraping the snow off of a sand volleyball court right outside of our dorms. And this guy walks by and uh, he stops and he says, you know, Hey, I've been watching the two of you play. Um, do you want to get really good? Like, is this really important to you? And my volleyball partner and I looked at each other and we we're like, yes, like, absolutely. Like it was a whole body. Yes. If you know what I mean? And, um, he said, well, then there's one thing that you need to learn that isn't about volleyball that will make the biggest difference in everything that you do. He said, it's about communication. He said, your job on the court is that whenever your partner makes a mistake, you have to be there before their inner monologue starts going. You have to be there to pick them up when they're about to beat themselves up. You have to be there to support them. And he said, it's those moments, those moments of support, those moments of uh, being unselfish, right? Of course, you, you're mad about the point that just happened. But he said, you can't let that get in the way of you being right there for your volleyball partner because your performance will hinge on how you handle these little moments of disappointment. And it struck me because every time that I was playing and my partner would make a mistake, I would feel my, like I would sort of get mad and I would hang my head and we'd walk back and I'd sort of have this silent punishment. You know what I mean? Like that, that sort of like, ah, oh, dang it. Right? right. And from that moment, I realized that it was about the inner game, right? More than it was about, you know, training. Again, we were training four hours a day, but my volleyball partner and I dove into um, personal growth, professional growth mindset, if you will. And uh, from that point forward, uh, we went out to, to California. We ended up playing two Olympians uh, at the, the peak of our careers uh, because of that change. And uh, from that point forward, I sort of took that mentality and I applied it to business. Uh, and so I ended up uh, leading personal growth and development for uh, an organization, a 200-person startup. And uh, the CEO said, hey, uh, I, I chose you to be in this role of heading up personal and professional development because um, success has a formula. And if you can figure it out in one area of your life, you can figure it out in other areas of your life. And so I want you to do that with the company. And so uh, that's sort of how I got my start. I ended up doing uh, a lot of personal development myself as well as, you know, taking uh, coaches training, et cetera. So um, I benefited a lot from realizing that it's about how we show up and it's about what we think and believe on the inside and that that shows up on the outside. And, and that if you're, a, if you're a good player, if you will, it's about communication and, and inspiring others to be their best selves. So, David, tell me why you think then so many people, because what's the world got now? Eight, eight billion plus people on it. What, why are human beings by their, their nature predisposed to the negative inner monologue that you talked about? What, what, what's, what's going on? Why, why is... The elite know how to tell that story to themselves in a way that pushes them to the next level. But the, the, the common person seems to have the opposite narrative. Yeah. You know, so here's another interesting part of my story. At one point, I decided to go back and be a Montessori preschool teacher uh, because I noticed that a lot of the issues people were running into seemed to get embedded when they were early in their 
lives. And so I taught two and a half to five and a half year olds during the day and then coached people at night hmm. uh, for a period of four years to, to really understand it. And what I found is that there's a lot of negative reinforcement that we pick up that often when you're really young, you don't really have an inner monologue yet. You get an outer monologue that becomes the inner monologue. And so not in a, not in a like parent bashing way or a teacher bashing way or whatever, um, they're doing the best they can to pass on the lessons of how we should behave. And so from my experience, um, I heard a lot of the phrases sort of get embedded in those formative years where a child would get a, a, a message over and over and then start saying it to themselves. And so from at least my experience, I would say it comes in very early, but our consciousness of how we speak to ourselves needs to go up a notch, right? And then what you do about it. Yeah, that reminds me of... Um I don't know if you've ever read the story or the, the research that Dr. George Land did with the NASA uh, group back in the 60s where he did the, he took the five-year-olds and he tried to create that to figure out how to identify what would make people creative problem solvers as yeah. astronauts. Yeah, yeah. And at, at five years old, uh, he found that they, 98% of them were creative geniuses. Yeah. But by adulthood, it was 2%. Exactly. And, and it, so he followed every five years, right? And they figured yeah. out that our educational system, and you're, to your point, our external environment puts us in these boxes and then starts to basically dictate the narrative to us. It causes us to be or convergent thinkers versus divergent thinkers. And, right. and, then when, and then if you grew up in a bad environment where you didn't necessarily have someone speaking love to you, speaking truth to you, speaking encouragement to you, yeah. you start to believe that story. Um, and I think, unfortunately, man, look at where our society is happening right now. You know, we're in the midst of all of this stuff you know, we're having all this racial tension on top of this coronavirus and you know, our, our, the society and our media, are they're dictating. I often think about that, David. I'd love your thoughts on this. My, my seven-year-old daughter, Priya, is from India. We adopted her from India when she was two and a half. And, and, I, and I'm thinking right now, she's picking up everything, mm-hmm. right? She's in that window you talked about. She's picking up everything around her. And it, what is her inner narrative right now? Yeah. Is she, is she, is she you know? She, she's a parrot. Like she yeah. does. She, she, yep. she picks yep. up and we follow whoever she spends the day with is who she talks like. Mm-hmm. It's uncanny. Mm-hmm. It's un, and she's been that, 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 that way since we brought her home. Whoever she spends the most time with that day is who she exactly speaks like, talks like, and acts like. And I think that's what you're getting at, right? So yeah. early age. Well, yeah. And, and I think what's interesting is our brains, they form, meaning the form the neural pathways, 80% of our brains form by the age of eight. Mm which means that most of that, most of the wiring that we have in place, how we react and how we respond, ends up being from some of those early conditionings. And uh, Harvard did, Harvard Medical School did some research that found out that the brain starts processing decision-making information up to 10 seconds before it ever makes you aware of it when you have these neural pathways in place, right? So people who get angry, right? Why did I get angry? Well, it already started firing up to 10 seconds before ever letting you know, hey, by the way, you're angry, right? Like, don't make that decision. And so we tend to act and react in ways when, when we haven't trained ourselves to slow down, to become aware, right? To breathe in the place. When we have those pathways that were formed early, we end up just reacting. And so right. change can sometimes be hard. And uh, when you said Priya ends up 
parroting or, or uh, mimicking, if you will, the person who she was spending the day with, our brains have what's called mirror neurons. So if we see somebody smiling at us, we tend to smile back, right? If we see somebody frowning at us or with an angry face, we tend to take on that same physiology partially to understand what we're experiencing and partially because our brains are better suited to say, if I mirror, I'm in rapport with that right. person, right? So that's sort of deep level rapport. So Yeah, that's great. We talk about that quite often in the mirror neurons. And so, so I didn't, I didn't know we we're going to go down this path, but I love it. Uh, today, right now, as we record this, um, you know, we're a country in a little bit of, of turmoil. We're a country in a little bit of stress. And I think about this because social media is like, what is it like? What would be a good analogy? It's like a digital car wreck mm, yeah. right? where, you, where, yep. where, you, where you can't help but look. You're yep. hoping nobody's getting hurt, yeah. but you can't help. And you're glad you're not in the, in the one getting hurt, uh, but you can't help looking at it. Yeah. And, I, and I think right now, social media and the media in general, they're kind of doing what you're saying. They're formulating the narrative for people. Yeah. And then those cognitive biases are being activated inside of our brains, which is causing us to actually believe narratives, even not just about society, but about ourselves that may not be true. Yep. Is that fair? Absolutely. You know, what's interesting, I do improv comedy. Uh, at least I did. Hey, look before. at you. You do. What don't, what don't you do? <laughs> I like to try a lot of different things because I feel like it all, you know, adds up. So I, I always uh, lean towards the things that I'm bad at, right? Like I try and I try and get good at things I'm bad at. Uh, so improv comedy is is one of those areas. And what they say is, uh, you never look at the person who speaks the line to see whether to laugh. You look at the response of the other person to see whether it was funny or not. And so socially speaking, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's sort of the deadpan. The reason the deadpan person is funny is because of the reaction it creates in another person, not because of what the line that was given itself, right? right. So we look to others to figure out how to feel, right? So some stimulus happens and then we look around. And so in the world of social media, it gets really, like you said, it's a, it's a car wreck that's that you can't look away from. And you look at all of the reactions and responses of people to those things that are spoken. And that could be by leaders of you know, the country, by organizations, by you know, whomever uh, that we look to. But we look to the responses of others to figure out how to feel. Mm, that's so good. part of why that's important then is when you're battling your inner dialogue or monologue, I guess, um, you have to look in some ways to the people that you'd like to be more similar to, right? Thinking about, you know, mentors that you have in your life. I'm sure you've had a lot of mentors in your life, you know, your papa being one, you know, as I'm sure people have heard that story. Oh, they have. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every show, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but looking to mentors of who do we want to be more like, because, uh, Research shows that we're the average to the five people we spend the most time with. So if you think about the power of that, we pick up the emotions of those around us like we do viruses. <laughs> it's a terrible thing to say, but right. you know, <laughs> yeah. you put on your mask, right? Uh, for the people that you don't want to be more like. And so uh, being really conscious of who do I want to be more similar to and, and making sure that you're spending time with them or getting exposed to their level of thinking is a, is a huge thing, which is I think probably why a lot of your listeners come here is they want to be exposed to your level of thinking, right? To, or pick up some, you know. 
I hope they have other resources to go to as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk, then let's move, because this is really, really fascinating stuff to me. I love this idea, um, the concept around we look to others for really information around that emotional connection about how should I think, how should I act, how should I feel? And, and, and is, it, is it designed, do you think our brains are designed that way because I don't want to go to you know full-on Maslow's hierarchy here, but we, we want to have that feeling of need of belonging, of fitting in. Absolutely. Is that a big part of it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, there's two, two sort of topics that brings up. One is um, recently I did, well, relatively recently, a couple of years ago, I did research with a PhD student at Harvard. And uh, we went inside of the organization that I was working with at the time to understand what drives work engagement. And there were lots of measures of what drives was predictors, if you will, of what drives engagement. But his hypothesis was that uh, belongingness and authentic self-expression would predict uh, this work engagement more. And uh, we found that it outperformed all measures that have ever been created, the, the drivers of engagement, right? So belongingness being one of the core, if you will, tenets of the brain. Uh, there's an organization called the Neuroleadership Institute. They also did a lot of research on this on the social brain and found that our brains, in fact, will become hijacked if our social needs aren't met. Meaning, uh, does the person who's in a status position, do, they, do I perceive that they like me? Mm. Right? Do I feel like I have autonomy to do what I need to do or do I feel micromanaged? Right? Do I have a sense of certainty right, about where my place is in the world? And so many of these things, by the way, got disrupted with uh, COVID and, and the social issues that are going on now. Um, relatedness. How much do I feel connected to the people around me? And then last uh, is a level of, if you will, transparency uh, of do I understand, is everybody being treated fairly here? Right? And so they came up with a model that talked about the social brain. So our brains literally are wired to be social right? and that they can uh, become overwhelmed or uh, less than functional when uh, those social dynamics are, are sort of out of sync or out of balance. And we, we talk a lot about what we coined self-preservation orientation. Yeah. That, you know, all of us as human beings, we, we operate from a place of self-preservation orientation. We wake up in the morning and that's just the way that, that our brains are wired. And I think to me, that's always been the core root issue, but science behind sure. everything you're talking about, right? I look, at, I look to all of those areas from belongingness to connectedness to fairness and all that. And I look at it through the lens of self-preservation. And I think the, the, the research would suggest that if I believe you're being treated unfairly, then, then I, I might feel unjust in my own spirit, yes. but ultimately that means that I'm going to be treated unfairly. Absolutely. Or the fear that I might be treated unfairly. Yep. Uh, and so all of those things kind of play in together with peak performance. I think where we're kind of going with today's episode is yeah. why are some people good at actually flushing that noise and being able to say, okay, I'm hearing this narrative either externally or internally, but I know that's not a true narrative because I know this to be this belief because belief ultimately drives behavior, this belief I have, or the ability to actually tell this belief story to myself in a moment of impact mm-hmm. is far greater for my chance of performance than the, what I'm hearing over here. Why are some people, is it, is it, is it development? Is it coaching? Is it, or are some people naturally wired to be able to do that? 
It's a great question. It's sort of the, are, are leaders or high performers born or made? Right? It's sort of the question that you're asking fundamentally. And I would say that there's very much a made quality. Research would show that as well. Um, here's what I mean by that. Uh, it, I've had some of the most chaotic, tumultuous times of my life be some of the times where I was most high performing. And, uh, and it was like, my life was falling apart. I, you know, I was formerly married. I was going through a divorce. Uh, we had all of our businesses together and it was basically like, we're wrapping those up and, and all this. And, and so every morning I would have to make a choice, you know, to your point, do I let this overwhelm me? you know, my emotions, my history, my inner monologue, all of that stuff, or do I put my priority on something else? And so I had a mentor at the time, uh, he's best-selling author of, um, I think like 40 books. He's like, he's, <laughs> he's a, he's a wild man in that way. Uh, and he sort of guided me through and he said, you need to make space for the emotions and the inner monologue. You need to make space for those things, but not believe them. Hmm which I thought was pretty interesting, right? Don't resist it because uh, you've probably heard the phrase, what you resist persists, right? Right. So he said, make space for it. And he said, I would encourage you to carve out time where you, get, you just allow yourself to process that and then you park it until the next time that you set up for processing that kind of information. And so uh, at the time I was leading personal and professional development workshops, you know, like I was, I was doing all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I had a team of, you know, a great team of people. And so uh, every morning I would wake up, uh, I would cry in my bed in the fetal position for two hours. I would give myself (laughs) that, that space, right? Like I would just, Ball my, I do well, whatever you, you I need to do. took that feedback to the nth degree. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that was, uh, I think, something like six in the morning till eight in the morning, right? And then after that, I said, okay, like, I've been there for myself. Now it's time to be there for my team and others. Yeah. And so I would go out and I would put my attention on the well-being of others because I'd given myself space, right? And it's because what I what I believe in is that in some ways, we heal by taking our attention off of ourselves. Right. right? Like putting your attention on the well-being of others can actually get you uh, into a better space. Uh, so um, I've used that a number of times when everything hit with COVID initially. And I was sitting in my living room. The question was either, what do I need to do for myself? Or what can I do for others? And I chose what I can do for others and ended up doing a a LinkedIn video series, just one a day videos for 10 days to help people deal with what's going on. Like I put my attention on others and honestly that helped me. Right. And then, and then funny how that works. Yeah. Yeah. As, as, as human beings that the more selfless we become seems to more successful. We, we seem to find ourselves. Yeah. Um, But our, but our instincts though, our biology dictates that that's the opposite, right? Because of self-preservation, it's what can I hoard? What can I do? How long can I throw myself this pity party? Because it's about me. It's not about right. others. Right. And you just end up, you end up getting stuck. Yeah. It seems like. What can I hoard versus how can I help? Yeah. That's a, that sounds like a book. You should write a book called, called that. <laughs> <laughs> it was birthed here first. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's the uh, well, my, my grandmother's 94 years old and um, she's the matriarch of our family. And the one thing that my wife comments about all the time, it's my mother's mom and she's the only grandparent I have left is, She's not had this life of abundance. I mean, she's a very meager life, but she is the most positive person. 
And she, no matter what happens, her reaction is always one of, you know, what's next? Well, that happened. So what? What's next? You know, that idea. Of, yeah. and, and, I, and I think not everyone in my family has that same attitude. And so yeah. luckily I think my, I've adapted, I got that gene from my, from my grandma. And I, I think sometimes it is genetic, right? Sometimes you just have a positive person in your family and some people are, have a positive mindset versus negative mindset. And that's been proven right with Carol Dweck's research, lots of others yep. And yep. on that piece of it. But when it comes to high performance as a leader, you're not immune to self-preservation, right? A lot of leaders Absolutely. do things and make decisions out of their own self gain that ultimately they might gain in the short term, but it ultimately could cost them yeah. their position, their company, their business, the, the very things they were trying to create. So when you coach a leader today, and I don't, when I say a leader, I don't necessarily I think everybody gets this impression of a you know CEO of a fortune 50 company. It doesn't have to be, it could be somebody who's you know le- leading a small business or leading their, their kids little league team when they eventually get to play again. Yeah. Um, when you coach those people, how, what, what's some baseline stuff? Where do you start? Like when you, well, let's do a, let's do a five minute counseling session here. With yeah, your yeah, there you go. Yeah. Coaching. Yeah, I'm, your, I'm your first new client that you've had <laughs> with this new program. How how do we start? Excellent. Uh, well, first, let me say you know I consider all people to be in leadership positions. Good. And regardless of what, regardless of the position, because you're influencing others, and I believe that leadership is about influencing people towards a vision or a goal that will somehow have benefit for others. Right. Right. So, so I do consider us all in leadership positions. So where I would start uh, in coaching is basically ask, you know, what's the impact that you want to have? And what's the impact that you have today? Because uh, many people forget to ask the question, what do I want to have? What impact do I want to have in life? Right. And then we'd sort of dive into, well, what are the things today that you think are aligned with the impact that you want to have? And what are the things that are out of balance, right? That aren't uh, trued up, so to speak. And usually there's, uh, if you will, resonant behaviors with their vision and, and dissonant uh, behaviors with their vision. And so uh, helping people put their attention on the impact that they want to have by nature puts their attention outside themselves, right? Is sort of, sets that in motion first. And then in service of whatever that is, helping them figure out that, that alignment. Um, I was working with a, a, a new client this morning, a CEO of a, a nonprofit that's doing great work in the world. And uh, he, he had to reflect on with himself, right? Like, how am I messing up my team? Right. <laughs> like, how am, I, how am I screwing it up? right? Against the vision that he has. So I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, no, where we it, start is, is your impact. Yeah, it does. And I think, so it sounds like what I hear you saying is ultimately though, you like to get people to think, Hey, what do you want to accomplish? You know, where do you want to go? What's that vision? But then asking them that second question, if you were to get there, what difference would that make? Right. Not just yeah. to you, but to the world and to others. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Similar to, I know you talk a lot about the why, yeah. right? What's your why for what you do? You know, for, for me, uh, as I step back and look at the world, you know, we have a lot of issues, a lot of, you know, social issues and all kinds of issues, but those issues get resolved in many ways when we support people in becoming the best versions of themselves, right? Independent of, you know, race or independent of background or socioeconomic status, the more that we can bring out our gifts, whether you want to call them God-given gifts or, or other kinds of gifts, the more that you can bring out those gifts, 
the better off we all are. It solves a lot of the issues. It's, we can't be blind to how the world is imbalanced. Right. But we need to make sure that we're putting attention on balancing things back out. But if you think about that why, everybody has a why. Yeah, absolutely. But not everybody's in touch with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and those who even who figure out their why and where it came from and, and why they believe that, then, then it becomes, what can I do to activate it? Yeah. And I think that's really, uh, we're, you know, we see really almost three groups of people out there, right? The, the group that doesn't even know how to come up with their why. And so they, they're, they're, they tend to be mired into looking at the world through the, the negative mindset lens of why I don't have something or what's wrong with the world. Then you got a group that moves out of that group into, well, I do feel like I've got a purpose here. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I have some ideas. And that, then that group discovers that why, but then they don't know what to do with it. Yeah, exactly. And then that third group has gone through that whole process. They know their why and they're out there activating and they're making yep. a difference. And how do you, how do you coach people through that continuum? Cause like everybody goes through the continuum. Some people make it through by their teenage years and they know yeah. exactly, you know, who they are and why they were put here and what they're supposed to do. And others are, you know, there's 80 year olds walking around, not even sure what the heck they're supposed to do with their life. Right? Yeah, absolutely. How, how yeah. do you, how do you help people navigate that process of discovering their gifts and talents and, and that, positive inner dialogue and then activating it into a way that makes a difference. Yeah. You know, I, uh, first I usually start off with honoring where they are, right? I, I, I consider that it's impossible to invalidate your way to growth, right? Like you can't beat yourself up to heal yourself. Mm. You know, like it, that it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So uh, honoring and acknowledging where your starting point is, right? If each of us can do that and sort of accept where we are, that's, that's actually the place to begin. And the second stage is uh, understanding a landscape that one of my mentors taught me. Uh, his name is Dr. Gay Hendricks. Uh, he talks about that there are four different zones. One is uh, what's called your zone of genius. It's the stuff that you love to do, that gives you energy, that gives you vitality, and that is something that not everybody can do right? Whatever that genius zone stuff is. The zone of excellence is the next thing, which is the stuff that you're better at than most, but you secretly dislike it, whatever the activity is, right? And usually, right, people build their careers around the stuff that they're better at than most, but they secretly dislike, which is why there's a lot of uh, drain, anger, uh, almost like resentment of success that people have built. There's a zone of competence, you're better, or you're just the same as anybody else. And then the zone of incompetence, which is the stuff that you don't do as well. You know, and in that I put like washing dishes for me, I always leave egg on the plate, no matter how many times I want, like I just suck at it, right? So uh, you could have a dishwasher or like, you know, a dishwashing machine or whatever. But, but there are certain zones where we each have these these qualities. And so oftentimes it just takes slowing down and helping people realize what they do better at than most. And usually the, the stuff that they do better at than most and they love it, it gives them energy. Usually that's the stuff that they say, I couldn't build a career around that. Mm. You know, oh, that's just this thing I do, right? And so we tend to discount the stuff that's easy and we tend to center our lives around the stuff that feels like work, that feels like it's a drain, that feels like, right? But we got rewarded for it. Hey, you're such, you're so good with numbers, but what if you love creativity, right? Mm. And like, that's what you want to do with your, so, and then, so you end up being an accountant who 
might be able to buy some art, but feels terrible every time they see it because they never got to express their creative side. It's, that's that's kind of what we the world that we live in is having to slow down and look at where we are uh, with our own talents and our own gifts. Wow. So I love it when a, an episode gets to this point because I think this is a point right now where everybody was either writing down the four zones uh, if they were at home or or they were trying to remember them as they're driving. And then, then right now, immediately people stop listening because they're processing their lives through those four zones. What, today, right now, where, what am I operating in? Yeah, um, That was really powerful. And I think that having a coach like you be able to help people navigate and know that most of us probably spend our time in the zone of competence or excellence yeah. when we're, our, our destinies are really supposed to be spent in our zone of genius. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. And that's a, that's a wake up call. Right. And it's, it's, there's no easy answer in how do I then migrate? Cause the natural next question is then how do I migrate my life to be reflective of my zone of genius versus my zone of excellence or, or competence? So would you say then, and this is a good place to, I think, to, to pull this full circle because we all have to make a living, yep. right? We all have to do something. That's just the way our society, I guess you don't have to, you can go live on a, in the woods somewhere and live off the land and have your own cabin um, and not really have to worry about society. But for, for the rest of us, we live in a society where you, you need to go and have provision and you do a job. And for those who feel like that's where I'm stuck, how do you operate in a zone of genius inside of a system that, is that, is that a fair question? Absolutely fair. Uh, I always say, uh, build a bridge, don't jump off a cliff. And here's what I mean by that, is that if you're going to cross the chasm, so to speak, of where you are today, to where you ultimately want to be, where there's you know, more freedom, more creativity, more passion, more all of that stuff. Uh, if you want to do it, most people say, okay, then I'm going to abandon the job that I have, right? I'm just going to leap because surely, you know, I'll fly. Right. And, uh, but, but there's this incremental way where you can start doing just a little bit more. That same mentor that I talked about says that um, even if you only get 10 minutes a day, do something that's creative in your zone of genius at least 10 minutes a day because it'll start to fuel not only your energy, but it'll start to fuel your creativity as to how you might move into some of those other zones. And ultimately, again, say mentor said that the more that you can then condense or compress areas that are zone of excellence into discrete time blocks, similar to what I talked about, like I cried for two hours. I compartmentalized that until I was able to move into the other stuff. He said, you know, take an hour of zone of excellence stuff, mark it on your calendar, set a timer. And as soon as you're done, you know, with either whether the clock comes first or the completions come first, have it in a discrete block and then spend more time in your zone of genius. And so it might start, the bridge might start with 10 minutes a day, mm. right? And then extend and extend until now you're sort of on the other side where you compartmentalize and maybe for only 10 minutes a day, you spend time in your zone of excellence. That's really good. And I, I think my, my daughter, Grace, who's 19 and just finished her freshman year at Ohio State, the Ohio State University. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can't forget the the. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think about people in her age group right now because they're just, just kind of discovering um, their their talents and gifts and who they are. And the earlier you can start to, so for her, she, you know, I think this is really good for those listening out there today, maybe as a checklist, like, what do you really love doing? If, if, if you woke up today and had nothing on your list, 
on your quote list, what would yeah. you say, Hey, I'm drawn to do this. So for her, she's, she's creative. She loves to, she's a great communicator. She loves to create and she, she does those things. And so she's getting a degree in communication. So you start to think about the path I see her going on. This is for anyone listening. Well, if you love being around people, she's very social and you love being creative and you love to, to interact and relationally with folks, you start to think about, well, that fits in every company. Yeah. Right. You start to go after those roles. Even if you're stuck right now, you can say, well, Jeff, I work at an auto parts store. Well, wait a minute. You're a creative who's in an auto parts store. Have you ever given consideration to have having the manager help allow you to redesign the store? Have you ever, you know, there's, there's things that yeah. you can start to do in the place you are Absolutely. to fit your zone of genius that may not fit it all the time, but give you outlets to start to use that. Is that right? Yeah. And that's how people create roles within companies. If yeah. you think about, you know, you just start saying to, let's say a manager, Hey, you know, I'd love to help do this, right? Like I think I'd be able to really contribute to the team in this way. And it lines up with your genius zone. Well, over time, and again, I've coached thousands of people over time, people actually say, Hey, why don't you stop doing that job that you don't like and do this full time, right? But right. they have to be willing to take those micro steps to, to survey the landscape and see what naturally fits. But then regardless of where you're starting from, you can migrate right, into a role that more suits your zone of genius. Well, and this is really, really important. And in fact, um, you know, Dan, my partner, who you know, he, we were talking about this earlier today. Because we live inside of organizations, we can't just operate in our zone of genius independent of the operational vision. Yep. Um, but but when our zone of genius lines up with the performance an organization is trying to accomplish because they have a mission and they have a vision, then what happens is, is now we're using our zone of genius to actually accomplish the performance, to your point, right? The peak performance of an organization. We feel good about ourselves. The organization feels good because it's accomplishing its greater goals. Yep. And now you're in your sweet spot, right? That's, that's how yep. you see magic happen. And that's high-performing organizations at its, at its distilled point, right? Is that a leader's job is to put everyone, to support everybody in being in their zone of genius. And that every person has the, in a way, the duty to contribute in that zone because it's life-giving. It has, yeah. it gives not only them life, but it gives the people next to them life. And, you know, it's, like you said, it raises everybody up. Yeah, that's really good. So for those who are listening today, I think, you know, maybe just do some self-reflection on that. You know, what, what are those areas of your life that you really know is your zone of genius? And then start to look for those concentric circles. Are there overlaps in your current vocation where you maybe you aren't utilizing it there? Maybe you've, maybe you've withheld your zone of genius for just your personal life. And what you've actually done is robbed your company from the opportunity to see you in your best, uh, in your, employ, in your, in your, your, uh, your peers at work to bring energy because you're not operating in that space. Cause you've, you've segmented them and compartmentalized them when the reality is, boy, if you could bring some of that zone of genius into the workplace, even if it's to your point in segmented time blocks, you're going to bring energy around yourself and, and others doing that. And managers listening, leaders listening, are you taking the time to actually discover the zone of genius of your people? Are you really asking those questions and getting to know them at a personal level so that you understand their zone of genius so you can actually give them opportunities to thrive in that space where possible, right? Absolutely. Well, so tell us, David, as we start to wrap then, this is really good. I feel like I got to go find my zone of genius now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you may be in it right now. <laughs> I would be surprised if you weren't. Is, is sarcasm a zone of genius? Because if it is, man, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, all, I'm all in. Um so tell us a little bit as we close a little bit about the work you're doing 
uh, with your coaching business, but also give us a little bit of a, of a, of a preview of the Peak Performance Week. I know you've been working on behind the scenes, if that's okay to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's no, it, it's where I, I did the same thing that we're talking about here. I looked at what's the impact that I can have with the limited amount of time and life that I have. And uh, I looked at right now, there's a lot of people who are struggling, who are needing this information. And so what I decided to do is a, a free, uh, basically conference, online conference where people can come and it's, it's free to organizations, it's free to individuals and all of that, where they can come and get some of this information and get the, not only the mindsets, but also the tool sets to operate at their best. So things like the zone of genius are, are is why we're putting this together. And we're expecting uh, about 100,000 people wow. to be there. Um, as you know, we're, we're going to have the blessing of having you there. Uh, as one oh, of the, stop. Stop, keep going. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, but, but it's really dedicated to helping people be at their best. Again, mindsets and tool sets to help them because right now we need it more than ever, right? And so uh, the company that I'm forming around this is really around uh, creating equity in the world meaning empowering leaders uh, of all kinds. And like I said, all of us are leaders. And so how can we really give the world what it needs right now from a social justice perspective, uh, but also from a leadership perspective and organizational perspective. So it's, it's making the world a better place uh, as a result of this thing. And it's coming up in October, October 5th through the 9th. Uh, and it's at, uh, if people are interested, they can go to peakperformanceweek.com. October 5th through the 9th peakperformanceweek.com. That's awesome. And the last thing I'm going to say, I'm going to leave the audience with this. If you really want to know where David operates in his zone of genius, it's actually salsa dancing. <laughs> Is that a to be continued? That's a TBD. <laughs> we may have to have you back on for uh, another story around that. But hey, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. I know the audience is going to take a ton away from this. And um, is there any way they can get a hold of you and your website from a coaching standpoint? If they want to get, yeah. maybe I've got a, a, an executive who wants to engage you. How would they find you? Absolutely. Uh, the company, as you mentioned, uh, Owl Hub is the, the sort of larger entity. Owl, like a wise old owl. And then Hub is in where people come together. So it's sort of where leaders come together. Um, owlhub.com. And it's just David at owlhub.com. Awesome. That's great. Well, thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for the difference you're making in the world. And um, we look forward to being part of Peak Performance Week this fall and uh, continue to help make the world a better place collectively. So thanks again. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.